Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, where is God when we are suffering, when we're in affliction or when we're at a loss as to what to do? We have questions about our future. And sometimes we're just longing for God to show himself, for God to show us the way, for God to solve our problems, for God to, to take our burdens, to lighten our burdens from off our shoulders. And sometimes it seems that God isn't hearing. As we read the scriptures, we learn that God doesn't operate on our timetable. As we read the scriptures, we, we read so often when the time had come, and when the Lord Jesus is born, when the time had fully come, God bides his time. God is doing his work in his way according to his timetable. He works in history, and he works in our lives more as a gardener than a mechanic. A mechanic looks at a, a motor and says, this part is broken, rip it out, put a new one in, and off you go. But a gardener takes time. And a gardener may take days or weeks or even months to to correct a tree which is growing the wrong way or to, to prune a bush in a certain way. It takes time. And that's the way that God works in our lives. And sometimes we're impatient. And sometimes we're so oppressed with uh, the things that we're dealing with and we don't want God to take time. We want him to deal with things now. If you have your Bible still handy and open, look at Psalm 77 for a moment. The psalmist is in trouble, he's crying out in the day of his trouble. In the, in the night, he's stretched out without wearying. He's refusing to be comforted. He's moaning, he's meditating. His spirit is fainting. And he's troubled. He's so troubled that he can't even speak anymore. And he asks himself in verse 7, Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? So the psalmist has a problem. He's weighed down by grief, by affliction, by suffering. He's, he's all cried out. He can't even speak anymore. And God isn't answering him. God isn't coming through. And so what does he do? If you look at Psalm 77 there, he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to appeal, verse 10, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. And he goes on to recount and to rehearse the great and mighty acts of redemption of God in the past, that he took his people out of Egypt, that he opened a way through the Red Sea, and that through the great mighty act of redemption, he brought his people out of bondage and led them through the desert by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Why would the psalmist remember that? Because he's reminding himself of how God works. God bided his time to save his people from Egypt. He bided hundreds of years. When they left Egypt and they were coming up to the Red Sea and the Pharaoh's army was chasing them and there was the sea in front of them and the army behind them and there was no way out, that's when God acted, and that's how God often acts. He waits until there's no way out. 
until the situation seems totally hopeless, when all human hope has failed, that's when God often acts to show that he is sovereign, that salvation is from the Lord. Now, Abram stands at the beginning of redemptive history. He didn't have a lot to go on. He didn't have the New Testament. He didn't even have the Old Testament. He's the father of believers. So he doesn't have a whole list of the mighty acts of redemption of God to to look back on. He's lived in the promised land now for 10 years. And he is about 85, 86 years old. And at the end of chapter 15, if you have your Bible open there still, at the end of chapter 15, God made a covenant. God said, to your offspring, the offspring that's going to be innumerable like the stars of the sky, to your offspring I will give you this land. So God's promised him a land and a people, a home and a family. And here he is 10 years in, and he's camping. He has no property. And he's childless. He has no family. So none of God's promises have come true. And he's getting old. Well, what do you do when God is waiting too long? Abram and Sarai make a bad decision. They they will help God to be faithful. They will help God keep his promises. Now, if that doesn't sound like a good idea, it's because it's not. They make a choice. They will use the cultural hermeneutic. They will look at the word of God through the lens of the culture around them. And in the culture in which they lived, and this is so far removed from St. Albert in the year 2021, in the culture in which they lived, this is about 4,000 years ago now, in that culture, it was a common thing when you got married to have a marriage contract which stipulated what you would do if no children were to be born. And we can't go into, the, also the de- into all the details, but children were very, very valuable and important to have in the ancient world. And so the marriage contract would sometimes stipulate if in, within so, so much time the wife has not born a child, she will procure a servant girl who will be given to the husband so that they can produce a child, and that child will be considered her child. That was a very common thing in that day. And that's what they decide to use to help God keep his promises. Look at what she says in verse 2. She knows who's in charge here. She knows why this is happening. She says, look, Abram, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. She knows very well that this is the sovereign action of God. But it's taking too long. And so let's try this. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now, there are a lot of red flags here as we read through the text. This is a female Egyptian servant. And the Egyptians, uh, in time, they're clearly historical enemies of the people of God. They're descendants of, of Ham, who dishonored the patriarch Noah. That's a red flag in the narrative. And here's another one. Look at the end of verse 2. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. What does that remind you of? Remember back in the garden, just after the fall, the Lord says, Adam, because you listened to the voice of your wife, therefore the earth is cursed. 
And now we hear that echo of Eden here, echo of the fall in the words of our text. And so there he is. He's been living in the land for 10 years. He knew the ancient records. He knew about the first marriage of Adam and Eve, one man, one woman. He was an educated man, Abram. He was a scholar. Josephus, who was a first century historian of the Jews, he, he communicates to us that Abram taught mathematics and astronomy to the Egyptians when he was there briefly. This man is educated. He knows the history of, of, of the world. He knows what marriage is. And just one chapter back in chapter 15, God promised him, your own son will be your heir. Your offspring will be uncountable like the stars. And in chapter 15, verse 6, the scripture says that Abram believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. And that's why he's called the father of all believers, because he believed even when he didn't see it. And God sealed his promises with a covenant ceremony there at the end of chapter 15. So here we have Abram. He knows what a God-ordained marriage should be. He knows that God has promised to make him a great nation. And he has assented to that. He has said, I believe you, God. And now here he is with Sarai scheming to help God to be faithful. And things go wrong. As they do, you know, and I know that they go very wrong when we try to help God, when we try to take shortcuts, when we don't want to wait on the Lord. There are all kinds of examples that we can give in our lives when we did not wait on the Lord and we decided to do it our way and it never works out, does it? And so it doesn't work out here either. Verse four, when she saw that she conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. This whole situation is against the created order. Marriage is not supposed to have a rival. That's not the way God made things to be. If you turn in your Bible to Proverbs 30, verse 21 to 23, you'll see that the scripture says the following. Proverbs 30, verse 21, under three things the earth trembles under four, it cannot bear up. A slave when he becomes king, a fool when he is filled with food, an unloved woman when she gets a husband, and a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. These are four things which go against the very structure of creation. They don't work. The earth can't handle it. It's not supposed to happen. And of these four, two of them are happening in our text. An unloved woman is getting a husband. Abram has no love for her. He's using her. And a maidservant displaces her mistress. Those things are happening in our text. When we do things our way, it hurts. It brings brokenness. And so Hagar forgets her place. She despises her mistress. She looked with contempt on her mistress. Verse 4. Now, this is, again, it's, a, it's, a, it's another world. This is 4,000 years ago. It's a totally different culture and time in history. It's hard for us to conceptualize, to kind of imagine what this is like. The word mistress here is translated in other parts of the Scripture by the word queen. It's not just somebody that hired you for the day to clean their house. 
The word mistress refers to someone who is a lady, a noble lady of great standing, a queen or a queen mother. And Hagar is despising her and looking with contempt upon her, the woman whom she ought to be honoring. We'll mention that a little bit later. Abram and Sarah, Sarai are, in a sense, king and queen of the people of God, even though it's in its uh, seminal form here. They're very, it's still very small. So she has contempt on her mistress. And so Sarai's idea went wrong. She's now living in a home where she has a rival. And even though for some men they think it would be great fun to have two women fighting over them, it's absolutely horrible for everybody involved, for the two women and for the man. The entire peace of the home is destroyed, and Sarai takes it out on her husband. She lashes out. She even breaks the third commandment. She invokes the name of God. May the Lord judge between you and me. She's upset. She's angry. She's frustrated. She's grieving. Abram says, well, listen, she's your servant. You deal with her the way you want. And so Sarai dealt harshly with her. Now, the word that we have there in the end of verse 6, the verb to deal harshly, that's certainly a, a legitimate translation that we have in, in our version. But for reasons which we'll come into to a little bit later on, because the same verb comes back a little bit later on in the chapter, I would suggest that, that it's not necessarily that Sarai is abusing Hagar. That's sometimes what we can think of. Sarai started beating up on her and being unfair and, and hurting her. But, but the verb can simply mean to put someone in their place. Put them down in their place where they belong. And so here Sarai has her servant who suddenly is walking around as though she owns the place and mocking her and putting her down. And Sarah says, no, that's not the way things are supposed to be. You know your place. Go do the washing. Go do this. Go do that. And she reminds Hagar of who she is. And probably didn't do it a very nice way, but it's not necessarily abuse that's happening here. But it's still a very unpleasant situation. She's putting her in a place. And the initial glory and status that Hagar had is evaporated. Now she's feeling humiliated as she tried to humiliate Sarai. And so she runs. She flees from the situation. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. And the angel of the Lord, who is the angel of the Lord? Is it just an angel? It doesn't say that. It says the angel. Well, if we look at the information in our text, we see, for instance, in verse 10, that the angel of the Lord speaks in the first person. He says, I will surely multiply your offspring. He says it to Hagar. Now, who can multiply the offspring of Hagar? Only God can do that. And then a little later on, we'll come to that in more detail, a little later on, in verse 13, she names the place, a certain name, Beer Lahai Roy, because, it can be translated, I have seen him. I have seen God. And we'll, we'll go into the details of that a little bit in a little bit. So who is the, the angel of the Lord? Well, many scholars 
consider it possible that many of the times in the Old Testament when the angel of the Lord appears, that this is the pre-incarnate Christ. This is the Son of God, the, the Lord Jesus Christ before he was incarnate, before he was born of the Virgin Mary. And I believe that is certainly a legitimate exegetical option here, that this is the Lord Jesus Christ himself meeting with Hagar in the wilderness. This is the Son of God. And she is by a spring of water in the wilderness on the way to Shur. That's the way to Egypt. Shur is a, a line of fortifications that are along the eastern side of the, the Nile, just on the east side of Egypt. And she's headed in that direction back towards her roots. She's an Egyptian after all, but she's in the desert and she's pregnant and she's a woman and she's by herself. And these are not good things. This is dangerous. It shows you how tormented she was and how anguished she was and how irrational she was because this was a very dangerous thing for her to do. And he speaks to her, Hagar, servant of Sarai. Now look how God does his pastoral work. God doesn't beat around the bush. God doesn't carefully avoid the elephant in the room. God puts his finger right on the point. She is fleeing from her mistress and God addresses her by her status and by her duty. Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? God doesn't hold back on confronting us with hard truths. Hagar, that's who you are. You're the servant of Sarai. And that's what you should be doing. What are you doing here in the wilderness? She says, I'm fleeing from my mistress. And again, the word mistress here is the word which is often translated in the scriptures as queen. I'm, I'm fleeing from the noble lady, lady whose duty uh, uh, it is, uh, uh, whose duty mine is to serve. I'm fleeing from my mistress. And what does God say? You expect all kinds of things, but it's a little bit surprising what he does say. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Why would God say that? Doesn't God stick up for the vulnerable, the oppressed? Wouldn't God be saying, you know, that's, you know she was mistreating you, Hagar, and it's so wonderful. You, now you're free and you can live life to the fullest and live life the way you want to live it. He says, return to your mistress and submit to her. You see that word submit there in the end of verse 9? That's the same verb that we have at the end of verse 6. That's what Sarai was doing to her. What Sarai was doing to her, that exact same verb God uses in verse 9 to say, you do that to yourself. And that's why I'm, I tend to, to, to understand that the, the better translation would be Sarai humbled her because God tells Hagar to do that. He says, humble yourself. Put yourself back in your place. She's putting you in your place. You put yourself in your place. Be who you are called to be. Do what you're called to do. Go back and take your place and be faithful in it. Now, why would God do that? Is God promoting slavery? Well, we have to understand that the, the whole way that serving and being served worked in those times is not quite what we know and remember from recent experience, for instance, in North America. Just back in Genesis chapter 15, 
Abram said to the Lord, Lord, I don't have any children, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. So one of his servants was going to inherit all of his considerable riches. So these were not slaves in the sense of being treated horribly and miserably. These were people that were serving, yes. They had their positions, yes. But they were considered as part of the larger family, as the part of the household. And everybody in that household had their tasks. But this wasn't just any household, was it? This was Abram, the father of all believers. This was Sarai. These were the king and queen of the people of God. This is the church in the Old Testament. And here is the word of God. No other place on the planet can you find at this time the word of God. Here is the worship, the true worship of the true God. Here God is constituting the new humanity. Here there is the promise of the Messiah, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all there in Abram and Sarai's household. And Hagar's running away from it. God says, you go back, Hagar, and you take your place and be faithful in it. Now I want to stop here for a moment and just add a parenthesis. The Lord certainly tells Hagar to go back to a situation which isn't the most pleasant, because Sarai, of course, is still going to be frustrated and probably won't be nice to her. And some people, maybe some people listening right now, may think, well, that means that if a woman, a wife, is being abused or mistreated, then they just have to go back and submit to the husband who is mistreating them and abusing them. And if you're thinking that as, you, as we're listening to this chapter, then you're wrong. This is not justification for telling people who are being abused to go back to the place of abuse. If there is a woman who is being mistreated by her husband, her duty is to take up the place that God has given her as wife and mother. And what is that place? It is not a place of servitude. It is not a place of being dominated. The place of a wife is a place of honor and love and respect. The relationship of a wife to her husband is the relationship of a queen to a king. And she is not to be treated like a child or a servant or a slave. So I want to make that clear. When God tells Hagar to go back to her job as a servant, that should never, ever be used to justify telling a woman who is being mistreated to simply put up with the mistreatment or the abuse of her husband. What he's doing is sin. It needs to be called out, and she needs to be protected from it, and it needs to be dealt with. And so we go on to verse 10, because the Lord adds something to his instruction. And he adds, again, something very surprising. He's speaking to an Egyptian servant, She has a certain place in the society of those days. And he gives her a promise befitting the father of many nations, Abraham. It's a a promise which echoes the promise that God gave to Abraham. He promises her a great offspring, a multitude of offspring, so that they cannot be numbered. It's a great blessing especially in the ancient world where, again, children and grandchildren, large families and great peoples were seen as great blessings. Unfortunately, that's not so much seen in that way today, but it was understood properly back then. 
that these are great blessings. But what kind of descendants would she have? Well, look at verses 11 and 12. He will be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. He shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. And we read that in chapter 25, that the Ishmaelites ended up being that, against everyone. The descendants of Hagar through Ishmael will be wild and free and independent and brash and indomitable. And the descendants which come from her through Ishmael are the Arab tribes which raided and harassed God's people over the centuries and still today are implacable enemies of the Jews. And so all these centuries, all these millennia of these desert Arab tribes attacking, harassing the Jews through to today. All of this is the result of Abram and Sarai trying to fix things their way, trying to make God's promises work. 4,000 years later, the decision that they made here in this chapter is still having consequences and causing grief for a lot of people. Now, the Lord says to her, your child's name shall be called Ishmael, and Ishmael means God hears or God has heard. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Now, there are a number of things we need to look at here. If you've got the Bible open, you see Ishmael. The Shma is the verb to hear. The I on the front is he, so he hears. And the El is God. El, Elohim, is God. So you call his name God hears because the Lord, Yahweh, has listened to your affliction. So God takes his covenant name, the name which he uses for his relationship with his people, and he says the covenant God, Yahweh, is the one who heard you, Hagar. Now why would that be? Why would the God of the covenant hear an Egyptian? Because she's part of the household of faith. She's part of the covenant community. And here we have a little, little spark of the New Testament truth, which comes into all its glorious fullness at Pentecost, that all nations and all tribes and all peoples and all languages will be gathered by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ to be part of his people. God is dealing with Hagar as part of his people, and he is coming to her as Yahweh, the covenant God. And he says, Yahweh has listened to your affliction. Think about that. Listened. He doesn't doesn't say Yahweh has seen your affliction. You would expect that. He says he has listened to your affliction. He doesn't say, I've listened to your cry for help. He says, I've listened to to your affliction. And you remember Psalm 77. We looked at it earlier in the sermon. Sometimes we're exhausted from crying out, aren't we? And we have no more crying to do. Sometimes we're too overwhelmed to cry out. Sometimes we just sit there and lie there and we're stunned and we're paralyzed because of the situation, the oppression of our sins, the oppression of the sins of others, the oppression of the circumstances, and we don't know what to do. And we don't know what to think. And we don't know what to say. And we don't even know what to pray. We have no words to articulate 
Not even in our heart of hearts, we don't know what to do. And the Lord says, child of God, I listen to your affliction. He hears your pain. He hears your anguish. He hears the inarticulate cry of your heart. And he promises that he will make things right at his time. And in his way, wait on the Lord. And so, verse 13, Hagar names God. An Egyptian serving woman names the living God. You are a God of seeing. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. See that in verse 13? Who spoke to her? The Lord. Another indication that this is the very Lord Jesus Christ himself and his, before his incarnation. The name of the Lord who spoke to her. And he says, she says, you are a God of seeing. Now, we don't have time to go into all the details. 13 and 14, the Hebrew is a little challenging to translate, especially when it comes to names. And so there are different understandings of the commentators on this and the scholars. And for a list of reasons which I won't bore you with right now, I do think that the, the import of what she's saying is this. You are a God of seeing. For, she said, have I really seen him here who sees me? And if you look in your ESV Bible and you look at verse um, 13, and you see at the end of verse 13, a little uh, raised number, a six. Do you see that superscript six there at the end of verse 13? And you look at the, the bottom of the page of the margin, and it gives an alternate translation. Hebrew, have I really seen him here who sees me? So that's what the Hebrew is actually saying. Have I really seen him who sees me? Hagar is part of the covenant family, covenant household, and she knows enough about God to know that you cannot see God and live. But she did see him, and she's alive. And so she calls the well, Be'er Lahai Roy, the well of seeing alive. I saw God, and I'm not dead. Did you notice? You probably didn't, but if you look back at chapter 25, which we read, that's where Isaac settles later. In chapter 25, it says that Isaac settled exactly at this spot later on, at Beer Lahai Roy. So she goes back, the household is restored, things are more or less back to normal, but now Abram has a son, and he calls his name Ishmael. Why would he do that? Because God told Hagar to call the son that. And Abram is obedient to the word of God. He listens. But it's the wrong son. It's not the son of the promise. And that's going to cause problems in the near future and in the long term. Now, as we read this chapter, this happened 4,000 years ago in a totally different context, totally different culture. It's also strange. What do we have to learn from this chapter? Well, there are many things we can learn. I want to bring out a few. 
The Bible doesn't hide the weaknesses and the mistakes and the sins of the great heroes of faith, the great patriarchs. The Bible is brutally honest. That's unusual. In fact, it's, it's unheard of. The ancient writings usually glorify the victors and the important people. They're what you would call very hagiographical. They, they just build them up and, and they erase any uh, uncomfortable or unpleasant truths about them. The Bible is wide open with the sins and the weaknesses of even the most important people in the history of redemption. And that's one more evidence that the Bible is not just any writing. It's certainly the Word of God. Another thing we can learn from this chapter is this, that we must learn to wait on God's time. That's what we, we've had to learn ever since the beginning, that we need to wait on the Lord, that we need to hold on to his promises, that there is no shortcut to the new Jerusalem. Now, if you've read Pilgrim's Progress, you know what I'm talking about, that those who take a shortcut don't get to the celestial city. And if you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress, you should. It's a very, very important book for every Christian to read. There is no shortcut on the way to the new Jerusalem. We need to walk the road that God has set before us to walk, even when that road is long and arduous and painful and difficult. And sometimes we wish we had never started walking on it. But it's the only way. It is through many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God. And so God calls us again this afternoon, brother and sister, walk the road that God has put before you to walk. Live the life that God has put before you to live. Suffer the sufferings that God has put before you to suffer. Wait the wait that God has put before you to wait. Wait on the Lord. And we've been singing through Psalm 40. And Psalm 40, 40 is a messianic psalm. It's it's prophetically speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he waited and waited on the Lord, and that at God's appointed time, he lifted him from the clay and mire and raised him up and exalted him. He just simply did God's will. Doesn't matter what was happening, he did God's will. He didn't take shortcuts. Now, he was tempted, wasn't he? You remember, children, at the beginning of the Lord Jesus' ministry, right after his baptism, the very first thing that happens is that the Holy Spirit drives him into the wilderness, and the devil presents him with a whole bunch of shortcuts. Why go through a life of suffering? Why die an agonizing death? Just do this. Just worship me, and you've got it all. There's the shortcut. And the Lord Jesus says, no, I will wait on the Lord. I will do the Lord's will. So brothers and sisters, that same dynamic plays out in our life as well. What does the scripture say? For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while. And the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. My righteous one shall live by faith. Abram didn't do that perfectly, but he did do that. And we're called to do the same thing. Hold on to God's promises. We're going to sing Psalm 40, stanza 4. What do we have to hold on to? What do we have to profess? We're going to hold on to the love of God. 
We're going to hold on to the truth of God and the righteousness of God and the faithfulness of God and the blessings of God and the trustworthy word of God and the steadfast love of God. That's what we hold on to. We don't try and figure it out ourselves. We don't try to short circuit. We don't try to shortcut. We don't try to fix or make things happen before God's time. We don't come with our own solutions, but we hold on to the promises of God. We wait for the Lord. So let's sing about that, brothers and sisters. Psalm 40, stanza four. Amen.